welcome to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. I'm June Grosso. Every day we bring you insight and analysis into the most important legal news of the day. You can find more episodes of the Bloomberg Law Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com podcasts. The defense in the Paul Manafort trial rested its case without calling any witnesses yesterday. Manafort's attorney, Kevin Downing, explained why while walking out of the Alexandria Federal Courthouse yesterday. Mr. Manafort just rested his case, and he did so because he and his legal team believe that the government has not met its burden of proof. Joining me is former federal prosecutor Ellie Honig, special counsel at Lowenstein Sandler. Ellie, as a federal prosecutor, how many times do you think you heard the defense say the government has not met its burden as an explanation for why it didn't present its case? All the time. Uh, whatever the number of trials I did times 100. Um, this is, this is the, the constant refrain from defense lawyers, and it should be. You know, that's how our Constitution is set up. It is the burden uh, of the prosecution to prove every count beyond a reasonable doubt. And so it's not at all uncommon to see the kind of defense that we're seeing from Manafort here, which is no defense, really. Um, but I don't mean that in a derogatory way. I mean, they don't have to put on an, any kind of defense. And so it's what we just call a reasonable doubt defense. Um, you don't put on any of affirmative uh, evidence of your own as a defendant. You just claim the government has not carried its burden. That's obviously true, that you don't have to put on a case, and many defendants don't. But would you expect with this, the high caliber and high price of this defense team, you have three defense lawyers basically in the courtroom, that you would expect at least some character witnesses, or is that too dangerous? Uh, no, I, I wouldn't equate, you know, the quality with the, with quantity. Um, and character witnesses, I, I've, I've been on trials where people have called character witnesses. They really don't do much because the, all they come out and say is this is a good person and he, he gives to charity. And, you know, the jury usually understands that has nothing to do with whether he com- committed the charged crimes. A person can be a good person and take care of his family and donate to charity but still commit bank fraud and tax fraud. So um, sometimes I think juries see that as, as just a dog and pony show, as sort of superficial. So if I was in the shoes of the defense lawyer, I think I'd do the same thing he did. I think I'd either mount a very robust defense or just go with reasonable doubt. Mm-hmm. So now closings today. Gates, Rick Gates, the star witness, appeared to have suffered some credibility problems during a tough cross-examination, he, which exposed some lies. Is the defense likely to stick with that blame the star witness strategy in its closing? They absolutely will. It, it's really the only place they have to go. You know, you can't attack the documents. You can't really attack the, the bank witnesses, the, the, the vendors that came in. So they made clear in their opening they're going to attack Rick Gates, and, and I would expect that's what they're going to do. And you can already see, you know, the prosecution has actually just within the last few minutes concluded its closing, and you can see the prosecutors are already bracing for that. And, and, and the line out of the prosecution's closing is the documents of the star witness in this case, which uh, when I saw that, I thought that's a smart line. It's, it's not dazzling. It's not catchy or anything, but I think it's a really good way for the prosecutors to, to sort of take the focus off of Rick Gates. Is he a criminal? Of course. That's why he's up on the stand. You know, that's, that's why Manafort liked him. But ultimately, look at the documents. So the prosecution has to prove that Manafort had criminal intent. How do they get inside his mind when there are witnesses between Manafort and the transactions? Yeah, that, that's circumstantial. You know, so people, people use the phrase circumstantial evidence like it's a bad thing, but it's not necessarily. And judges will instruct jurors, you may use your common sense inferences to, to, draw, to draw inferences about what the circumstances say. So 
if these if these accounts are controlled by Manafort, which it seems clear that they are, and if he's ordering documents to be falsified, as it seems clearly that he was, and if he's the one receiving all the benefit, all the millions of dollars, which seems pretty clear as well, then then a, a jury is well within its right to infer that he had the intent. Now, we've talked about the judge before, moving the trial along, but we haven't talked about all the comments that the judge made during the trial, some on the prosecution's evidence and one that was flatly contradicted by a transcript, which he brought out, but he never really said he was wrong. Could his statements have an impact on the jury? They could, yeah. Ju- juries, of course, listen to judges, and ju- you know the judge is the most powerful figure in in the courtroom. And juries literally look up at the judge. So, yes, uh, juries are swayed by things judges say. I think the judge got a few things wrong here, uh, as you pointed out, um, and I think he even sort of misstated the law when he, when he snapped at one of the witnesses. Can you tell us about a bank loan that actually happened? It's still mm-hmm. a crime if they if they tried to get a bank loan illegally, even if that loan didn't happen. So that could have an impact. I, I will say though, on the other hand. I've seen situations where judges have bullied one party or another, maybe the prosecutors, maybe the defense, but sometimes if the judge is really, uh, over, you know, comes on too strong or abusive to a party, it has the effect of actually rallying the jury to that party's side. You know, the, the party will sort of start to empathize or sympathize with that side, and that can actually sort of work the opposite way as well. Let's turn to the Mueller investigation for a moment. Trump's lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, has been stating deadlines for Mueller to end the investigation just to about since he got on the team. Now he's claiming that if the investigation isn't over by September, quote, then we have a very, very serious violation of the Justice Department rules. Explain that murky policy at the Justice Department and, and whether where Trump isn't even on the ballot, there's any problem here. Rudy's off base, and he knows it. He's, he's been at this long. He worked for the Department of Justice for decades. Um, this is, first of all, the idea that, that you don't do things within 60 days of an election is a custom and a practice. It is not a rule. It is not a regulation. It is not a statute. Second of all, Rudy seems to be suggesting that the rule says either you absolutely stop everything you're doing, you pause it until after the election, or it sounds like what Rudy's really saying is they have to finish by then, and they have to just end the investigation, and neither of those are true. What the custom is is you don't take over steps. You don't get behind a podium and announce a new set of charges. You, you know, typically don't go out and do an arrest in that period. But can you continue doing your work? Of course. And, and, and uh, Mueller's made clear that he intends to keep doing his work. There's already there's a, a known grand jury date for Kristen Davis for September 7th. So he has no intention on stopping what he's doing on September 1st, nor should he. Now, Giuliani has gotten the facts wrong at times. He's gotten the law wrong at times. But has he succeeded in confusing the public, murking the waters? Uh, it could be, and that may be the goal. Um, you know, he's certainly been out there and visible and, and loud, and I guess if he says something enough times, it sort of tends to stick in people's heads. And, you know, there is polling out there that shows that a good number of people across parties, Democrats or Republicans, would like to see Mueller finish up by September 1st. But uh, everybody wants every criminal investigation to finish up, whether you're being investigated or you're just a member of the public. It's not pleasant, but it's necessary that it go on until it's uh, done right and concluded. And certainly the length of the Mueller investigation is far less so far than some of the other special counsel investigations. Thanks so much, Ellie. Always a pleasure. That's Ellie Honig, special counsel at Lowenstein Sandler.
It's unprecedented. On Monday night, the West Virginia House of Delegates voted to impeach another branch of government, the entire state Supreme Court. If the Senate also votes to impeach the justices, their seats will be filled by the state's Republican governor, except for one seat, which the voters will decide, because Democratic Justice Robin Jean Davis retired from her post effective one day before the impeachment. The majority members have ignored ignored the will of the people who elected the justices of this court. They have erased the lines of separation between the branches of government. Joining me is Patrick McGinley, a professor at the West Virginia University College of Law. Patrick, is this really about extravagant spending by the justices or is there more? Well, certainly um, on the surface, uh, it's uh, the focus has been on extravagant spending and mismanagement by members of the Supreme Court. But uh, critics uh, suggest that there's more to it, that um, this is a power play by uh, the Republican legislature and the governor to replace uh, all of the members of the Supreme Court with um, uh justices friendly to their perspective by appointment of the governor. Uh, and so uh, that uh, the specter of uh, political impeachment certainly uh, is on on the horizon as being discussed here in West Virginia and uh, and exploring the media around the country. Uh, that's that's uh, also a topic of concern. West Virginia's constitution, I understand, allows the judiciary to set and control its own budget. Are there specific laws or rules that govern the judges' expenditures that, you know, the West Virginia House of Delegates points to? Well, there's, there is a, a civil law. Uh, the only one really cited specifically in the Articles of Impeachment is one that uh, uh, that allows uh, the court to appoint retired judges to sit in places where they're needed, where there's a heavy caseload or there's illness of a judge. And uh, that statute indicates that uh, those um, special, specially appointed uh, judges should not be compensated more than sitting circuit court judges in the state. And apparently there have been instances where uh, the Supreme Court has uh, approved the appointment of judges in certain uh, circuits uh, where their cumulative income during a year um, exceeds that of a, a sitting judge. That's uh, it's not a criminal statute, but that's what's cited in the Articles of Impeachment. Have is there a separation of powers problem here that, and this may set a precedent in that area? Well, of course there is. Uh, uh, the ability uh, of one branch of government to displace the entire uh, head of the judicial branch is is a matter of concern, and of course. Uh, that is more likely to rise. I might say that it's really never these circumstances where uh, all the members of a court have been impeached 
And impeached, by the way, doesn't mean uh, conviction or removed from office. It's a equivalent of an indictment. That's that's never occurred in West Virginia or in the United States. So uh, that that's unusual and it's unsettling. Uh, but it only occurs uh, in a situation like this where the both the legislative branch and the uh, governor's office is occupied by uh, members of the same party. And I think historically you don't see this because uh, in state legislatures uh, the members are cognizant of the impact of such a uh, such a move would be on the integrity of the entire uh, judicial system. And also, uh, uh, the removal of all the judges would throw the West Virginia court system I- into disarray with thousands of pending cases in the Supreme Court uh, being the, the body that not only hears uh, appeals from lower courts, but also administers a lower court system. So, Patrick, we have about a minute here. Does it seem as if this is going to go to the Senate? Will the Republicans in the Senate be able to to vote for impeachment? Will this actually go through? You know, I'm skeptical. Uh, I, the members of the House have made their point uh, that there's not going to be uh, excessive spending uh, on renovations. The judges will will be um, uh, uh, cognizant of uh, spending taxpayer money. This really seems to many to be overkill. All right. Thanks so much, Patrick. That's Patrick McGinley, professor at the West Virginia University College of Law. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to the show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com slash podcast. I'm June Grosso. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg.